Boot Works. Theatre. Talk Shop. Bootworks Theatre Talk Shop. Welcome to episode 5 of Bootworks Theatre Talk Shop, a new podcast hosted by me, James Baker. In this first series, I'll be talking to a whole host of interesting children's theatre makers and producers who, in their own way, offer something new, exciting, and potentially challenging to the world of children's performance. Today I chat to Sibylla Peters, a researcher and performance artist whose projects tend to focus on participation and collective discovery. As such, Sibylla is director of Hamburg's Theatre of Research, where children, artists and scientists meet to explore issues in the fields of cultural studies, science and social activism. I first came across Sibylla's work during her Playing Up Live Art project at Tate Modern. On that day I spent a pleasant afternoon dressing as a beastie and searching for miracles. At the time of this conversation, Sibylla had just come to the end of Kaput, the Academy of Destruction, also at the Tate, and we talked about both of those projects here. So away we go, this is my chat with Sibylla Peters. Hello Sibylla. Hi. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you so much for making time to talk to me. It seems like it's been an incredibly busy week for you. Yes, it was. Actually, it was more than, more like two weeks or four. Yeah, it was a pretty intense time of preparation for this also. So we're now in the, we're in the Tate Modern at the moment, in the exchange room here, uh, and you've just come to the end of a project. Or is this the end of the project? This is the end of the the few days here, isn't it? Right, Of a project called Kaput, which we'll certainly talk about in a minute. But if we can, to start with, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about you as an artist and what your practice revolves around. All right. I mean, um, I have a background. I have a background in academia, so I studied literature and philosophy, and I worked in university, made my PhD, and I did a lot of cultural studies research. That means that you spend lots of time in the library and you read books not many other people read, and you write books not many other people read. And um, at some point, I felt that. I wanted to find a way to test my findings in the re- more in the real world, like what would be an experimental way to do cultural studies, and that was my entry point into uh, working not only in performance but also working with kids because the topic that I was interested in back then was where do we learn about time and why. Yeah, why is it that we feel that time is just happening to us and it's not something that we are all making together? And I thought about where to find and feel to to work around that and I've felt that in elementary school is the place where we learn about time the most or the the basic things. And so I went into uh, into elementary school and worked with with children, but also with other people from cultural studies and psychology and so on. And that was the first time that I experienced this um, well, relief, really, that um, these things actually interest someone. <laughs> and, and that it, it can be really, um, I mean, it's not just for education or anything, but it's really really can be a part of your own research process to share it with young people. So I've read a little bit about this project that you're talking about, about mm. time, and with, that you did with children, or well, you did with all sorts of people, but some of mm. which were children. And was it the case that you went into a school and upset the way that um, the children responded to time? So they, instead of being governed by the bell that would go at the end of every lesson, you found, was it a box time rings a bell? Yeah, Yeah. I mean, um, basically the setup was, it was my first performance and it was really very academic, so it was scientific really. We we had this idea, okay, to find out about how time is made, maybe we can get rid of it. So how can we get, our question was, how can we get rid of school time? Can we get school time? which actually is a, a term, a word in German, school time. Right, okay. Uh, can it has get, its own... It has, it's a word. Uh, can you get school time out of school? And, and that was a question that we all could work on together very well because the kids obviously had 
hands-on experience, how school time affects them and possibly is made. Obviously, the bell was important in that, but not only. There were three things the kids talked about that they found strange about time coming from kindergarten, that suddenly when you come to school, um, there's a time for work and a time that is not for work. A leisure time. Leisure time mm. and work time and this difference that didn't really make sense to them so much in the beginning. Children are really great at subverting those two things anyway, aren't they? Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and, yeah so, and then the other thing, of course, that you have to be on time, all the time suddenly on time, which is, they talked about it and, and that, that's again then I like it more in English because it's a little bit like you are on drugs. You get on time and then you never get off it again. <laughs> right, you get hooked <laughs> on the notion of time. Yeah. And then yeah, it's difficult to kick the habit, I suppose. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> and then also that you give your present time somehow to the future, that you're constantly asked to sacrifice the present time for something that's supposed to happen in the future and will only happen if you sacrifice your time now. Mm. So these three things we were working on to kind of... Sub we, this was, was what the children said school time is basically made of. Did you, did you find that uh, the children have a perception of time that's almost infinite, in that there's, got, there's so much time left for a child, potentially, that do they see... Do you, did you find that they sort of perceive time in a different way than we would necessarily? Um... I mean, working, I'm sure that would be true for, for smaller kids, but working with the kids in elementary school, it was very much about them understanding for the first time what is very evident to us, but hearing it back from them has, I mean, it has a strong evidence then to you. If, if there's an eight-year-old child who explains to you, yeah, well, you can't enjoy the present so much anymore because if you don't do this and don't do that and then you don't get a proper job later on and then you, and yeah, you, you kind of see that whole system very in, in its brutality in front of you if an eight-year-old tells you that very sincerely mm. and he can't enjoy the present much because then he does never get a job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's frightening, isn't it? <laughs> I spent a few, um, a few years back, I spent a year in residency in a school mm -hmm. and going back to a school context after having left one, I thought I remembered what school was like and in the first lesson I sat in on, I forgot how draconian the whole thing was mm. and how important it was to not have elbows on desks and that no one had a coat on and mm -hmm. all these sort of rules and structures and rigor that to me as an adult seemed ludicrous. Mm. Sure, you know, the point of being in this room together is to learn and engage, um, but it almost wasn't. It was to conform a lot mm. of it and to mm. conform to the idea of education being about getting a job and having to pay attention and mm. having to watch your manners and those kind of things, which seems totally counterproductive to mm. the way a lot of, well, some of the learning that's happened mm. here this week, potentially. Um, I'd quite like to talk to you, because the, f the first that I knew about your work, I think, uh, was playing up live mm -hmm. art uh, when it was here at the Tate. Was it at the Tate here first? Before yeah, it went we launched it in the, yeah. in the Turbine Hall. And that project um, was about encouraging families to engage with um, notorious piece, pieces of live art that's existed over the last 50, 60 years, um, and to recreate those pieces of live art um, as a group. Is that a fair... Yeah, that's, that's exactly what, what it is, playing up. I mean, Marcel Duchamp is a part of it, but that's... Oh, so that's a hundred years ago. Oh yes, yeah, sorry, my art but, history yeah, is no. poor here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's what we did, and that was very much um, initiated, really, by the Life Art Development Agency. To yes. Do that. Mm. And I uh, just, I think the the invitation sums it up really nicely when you say that families are invited to make clothes out of food, lie on top of cars, dance with animals, try bagism make a catch-up fight, follow a random passerby through the city, remote control your parents, which was one of my favourites. I really enjoyed <laughs> watching that one. 
Uh, invent your own sport, search for miracles, create an alter ego of the opposite gender, deconstruct electrical devices and build whatever happens ne um, what happens next machines. Which, to a kid, I imagine is like Christmas and birthday all at once. Maybe, I don't know. Did you find... Um, to me, there's a certain uh, parallel between the way that performance artists and live artists approach the world and experiment with practice and um, try things out and the natural inclination of children to play. Did you find that the children were far more receptive to the invitation to play than play with live art than adults or was it quite... Yeah, I mean, obviously kids... Um, we also made kids um, guides on playing up, so... Um, they were facilitating and helping families to get into into the game with playing up, and they did that. They did a great job on that. And but um, I mean, generally the um, the parallel that you are talking about between play and and what performance art or theater or all, all kinds of yeah performative art forms uh, what they do is a bit is sometimes it can also be a bit misleading. <laughs> Just, um, for example, I mean, what we do a lot is we try to create something that is um, holding a balance between fiction and reality a lot. I mean, maybe not so much with playing up, but with, with lots of my other work. And, definitely with Caput, the Academy of Destruction. It's often about creating um, a collective body that is that you wouldn't usually find, that is in some way improbable. For example, also we, we created a children's bank or um, we created an assembly of real and other pirates. Or So we try to, to, to create a setup that is somehow not they can only be really set up in the frame of art, but then we try to make it as real as possible. Mm. And um, sometimes we have like a productive tension with kids, smaller kids mostly when they are on our projects, because they they want to play that. Then you know they they don't they don't care so much for the real. They don't distinguish. <laughs> yeah, yes. They don't care as much for the real as a performance artist would do. A performance artist is not, you know, playing is very, it's a lot about representing things. You are that, you are this one now, and you are the house, and then when we come, you do, you know, and mm -hmm. this is, this basically, it's, play is, has a lot to do with acting, and, and, and live art tries to break that. Mm. So, I'm not sure about, about if the play help, always helps us so much. Yeah, yeah sure, sure. But I, th I think, I feel like a lot of that work, a lot of performance art, a lot of live art is about challenging assumptions and breaking rules, which I think kids do have a naturally gravitate towards. I think the more we age, the more a lot of people enjoy the comfort of conformity, whereas the kids perhaps will more readily entertain the wonder of potential difference you know they want to there's more scope for change in the world perhaps for children i think they're better at imagining different ways of doing things than adults necessarily are mm -hmm. yeah so when the invitation to have a catch-up fight is introduced to them yeah i mean <coughs> also this is something that we discussed a lot here these last days um but something that hasn't been said i mean obviously kids don't have as much responsibilities for things mm. than adults have. Yeah. And of course they also like smashing smashing stuff because they are not usually the ones who have to clear up afterwards. <laughs> you know, so there's there's like a very uh, basic kind of conflict of interests possibly going on there. Mm. But then on the other hand, um, it is very it is very good to have their questioning the things. It's very good that it's, and it's very important that we just don't only take them into responsibilities. And like Zainab, one of the kids from Kaput just said, um, 
that she is forced, that people tell her she's forced to represent her school, and that is why she has to behave like this and like that, or she represents her family, and she never even gets to the place where she represents herself first. Right. right. So, and, and things would obviously um, um, profit a lot from that if we take that moment before kids take the, take the responsibility and they have a choice, do I want to do it like this or do I want to do it like that? And if I take this responsibility, how do I as a person really take it? How can I, how do I want to do it? And, and that's not happening so much anymore, I think. Yes, you don't often find a forum for that to happen. It seems to me from some of the things that I've read that you've written, um, that one of your bugbears, one of the things that really irritate you is contexts or situations or pieces of work where children are used almost as an extension of the sonography or that, you know, as a, as a dramatic device as opposed to a person. And that, what you've just reminded me of that in that this girl represents her school and her family before she, before she represents herself. Yeah. And the, the agency of a child as a child is at the center of seemingly a lot of the things that you do with children? Yeah, I mean, I, I was just thinking about a project actually a, a student of mine did that is called The Youngest Court, which in Germany would be Das Jüngste Gericht, which is the same, the, the youngest court is basically what you are facing when you're dead and they decide if you get to heaven or to hell. The young, that's a German expression for it. So um, this project was about uh, working with kids who were on the um, threshold of being responsible in front of the law, which in Germany is 14. Oh, right, Before okay. you're 14, you can basically do... I mean, you will <laughs> not end up in prison. Yeah. When you're 14, you might. Yeah. Right. And so it was about this threshold, okay, now I become a subject of the law and um, use this moment to get their expert to get their experience or their view of what happens actually in law so she took them to um, to court to observe what's going on there and read law stuff with them and then they had they made a court themselves and invited people who felt that they didn't get what they deserved in court so they couldn't there was no more court for them to, to how do you say that in English? Um, their cause, I mean, their cause, um, courts would not accept their causes anymore, right? Mm -hmm. So, but that this youngest court would take their cause. Right, I see, yeah, yeah, So yeah. they could get their right in front of that youngest court. Uh, and, and then the kids um, acted as, uh, in a way, as judges mm. on, those, on those cases and could have this experience of, okay, we have to speak the law now in some sense. We can, of course, speak it differently than a usual court would do, but how would we do that? Mm. And get their input on the system. So really use that moment when young people are not yet part of the system, but become part of a system as a dynamic to, yeah, to, to um, also take the chance to change the system that is in that, that always new people, young people come and take over and be subjected and take over responsibilities and really use that much more in society as a moment of reflection. Or as a, there's a huge potential in the way they see the things, which is not not so much educational, but which could feed back into the systems much more. Mm. That they're active participants in the in social structures as opposed to witnesses of or 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 just be subjected to them. Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it does seem that the the sort of arbitrarily decided. Not, they're not arbitrarily decided, but ages by which you are granted access or rights as an individual. And the, I think I've read recently something that you wrote about that the way that we treat kids now is similar to the way that women were treated in early 1800s. Yeah. Um, and in the, in the reading I've done around the rights of the child, it seemed like they were only granted after animal rights. <laughs> so in terms of the, the hierarchy of the way that we think of people, yeah. 
women, animals, children is yeah. a, just a bizarre, it's bizarre yeah. um, lineage, isn't it? Mm. And I think that's also something that lots of people enjoy who, who witness our projects also as adults that they, for the first time, really, often for the first time, have the chance to listen to kids as equals. Mm. Where, where do you find that? Where do you have a frame where you can actually, where, I don't know, where the positions are set in a way that you actually hear what a young person is saying as something an equal is saying and not something uh, that is cute or, yeah. or that should be protected in our, like all this paternalistic, also well-meant feelings that we have towards uh, younger people. That's basically the same. Uh, that it was with uh, with women earlier. Welcome to Kaput, the Academy of Destruction. I am Tolu and I am the principal of the Academy. A for anarchy. B for breaking. C for catastrophe. D for destruction. E for enragement. F for freedom. G for Gustav Metzger. H for hope. I for idiotic. J for junk. K for kaput. L for life. M for melting. N for negativity. O for optimistic. P for power drill. Q for question. R for reckless. S for sadness. T for thermodynamics. U for utopian. V for vengeance. W for wreck. X for X-Men. Y for yin and yang. Z, Z for, for zombie. That's certainly something that struck me watching yesterday. One of yesterday's sessions at Kaput, the Academy of Destruction, was um, the, the air time between adult and child was favoured towards the child. You know, the, the, the active voices in the space were children, much more than anything the adults had to say, and that it felt unusual to come across a context where that happens. Um, and that the, the children weren't... The experience was curated, but it didn't seem the content was curated, that the children were legitimately talking about things that they had a real investment in, and that they were... And actually, to hear children talk with real expertise about... The one that I'm talking about particularly is the top 11 um, destructive moments in fiction, yeah. and those children being real experts on anime and manga films and superhero yeah. worlds... And, but with a real depth of knowledge and understanding yeah. of those contexts and to listen to them give a lecture effectively yeah. about what they felt passionately about was quite unusual for me. Yeah, yeah. I mean what also then happens often is, I mean what you might have also witnessed yesterday in the session when we then did the zombie apocalypse or the presentation uh, by Martin O'Brien that when kids or younger people engage Often adults sit back then. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, okay, now, now that's for the young people, you know? It's yeah. like, it's very difficult. I mean, you can create a space where children speak, but it's very difficult to create a space where adults would still speak. Where everyone speaks, yeah. yeah. I am the undead member of the Academy. I'm probably the world's only zombie, real life, living slash not living zombie. And you might think, well, why doesn't he look like the TV representations of the zombie? And it's because I take medication in order to keep myself looking as good as I look. And there was an artist, a really fantastic artist called Jill Hocking, who died about 15 years ago. And Jill Hocking made a performance that was three days long. And for the performance, what she did is she got a lot of cabbage leaves and she stitched them together into a big blanket and then she lay underneath the blanket, and over the three days, the cabbage leaves started to rot and decay on her body and turned into this slime and gunge on top of her. And um, I found it a really amazing performance because she had this disease called cystic fibrosis, and that's the same disease that I have, which I think turns me into a zombie. Remember, this work of art is gonna be donated to the Tate Modern, and you're all gonna be listed as uh, contributors. I think that the reason physical destruction is so, it makes people so like happy and 
they enjoy it so much is because it's really empowering. So there's nothing saying that they can't do it. And similar to Ma what Martin was saying about how it is, it's something that you're not generally allowed to do. So it can be, it's always nice to do something that you're not meant to do. In the summary film that you've uh, screened today of the, mm -hmm. the few days activity, um, one of the children said something really poignant <coughs> for me and that it was that she'd realised um, over the last few days that adults are imperfect. <laughs> and I, I found that a real revelation. A, that children perceive adults to be perfect and that adults manage to maintain that illusion. Um, and part of me thinks that, that that is what you talk about when the adults sit, but I wouldn't possibly be a zombie in this moment. That's for the mm -hmm. kids or the artists, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and it reminded me of that phrase that a child becomes a teenager when they discover that adults make mistakes and mm -hmm. then they become an adult when they learn to forgive those mistakes. <laughs> so, and it <laughs> seemed so like that girl yeah. had mm. gone through, you know, a certain stage of childhood mm. in the course of the last three days mm. whereby she's had this revelation that, that adults are flawed and that they don't know everything and that actually a healthy part of learning is to admit that you don't know everything and that part of the engagement is adults and children working things out together. Does destruction or our idea of what is destruction change over time? Is destruction empowering? Is destruction part of peace? Because everyone makes out like peace is everyone being calm and everyone loving each other. But young people don't get their view on what is peace. It's only what adults see what adults see peace as. So what really is peace in the frame of mind of a young person? Can destruction and art change anything about destruction in the world? Yeah. Then also one aspect of that statement that was also very important to me was was about diversity that um, um, many kids who basically and and here in Britain with much rigor are held to be either in their school or in their family context or in a very controlled kind of course something but not really members of the public because the public is somehow too dangerous or something um, that they often miss diversity as an experience in, in people because they don't make experiences of the public very much and so uh, what she also meant was, was not just adults have flaws, but there are adults who are gender non-binary and those who act crazy and those who, mm. I mean, all these, weird, all these weird people that we don't usually get to meet, you know, that's also what she said. Sure, yeah, yeah. And, and, and I find that also very important because that's, I think, also an experience that we all have when we look back at our childhood or our, our, our adolescence that we, we felt at some point often very, very lonely and felt that we were somehow not fitting in mm. with something that we just hadn't found yet in anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and what a revelation when you do find yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, then, and then suddenly when you get to, when you're lucky and get to university or whatever and you suddenly have a diverse crowd and you find, well, I don't have to be lonely, you know, it's yeah. not necessary. And, and that, that's obviously, a, something like a strong demand that young people and kids would have towards a cultural institution mm. that there they might find this kind of diverse public to engage with. But that seems to be an attitude in your work as well that uh, the children are ready for it you know they're ready to read about Chris Burden's transfixed where he's nailed to a Volkswagen Beetle or to watch you recreate uh, crawling across gra uh, broken glass or um, to come to an academy of destruction where they talk about smashing things up and breaking things mm. and the potential for danger seems to be really quickly abandoned once the or, or even down to the, the otherness you're talking about in mm. uh, introducing children to trans culture or queer culture or ethnic diversity or these things that children seem to be seemingly safeguarded against. Yeah. 
and 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 that's doing lots of lots of damage right this kind kind of safeguarding um and and assuming that someone wouldn't be ready to find in the outer world or in someone else what they have in themselves anyway you know? i think that, that that's also something that i found very very funny when when Jazam and Redpool, the, the guys yesterday, the uh, 11 year olds talking about the 11 best scenes of destruction in anime. I mean, we had so much discussions also here um, at Tate, and you usually have about what is appropriate and what is not, and what people think is appropriate and so on. And then they just sit there and say, well, and then he became a superhero after he was abused by his father physically and by his mother mentally and then he just grew these powers and then he killed everybody mm. and so they, they went on about this whole, yeah. <laughs> this whole thing for I could they would still be talking if we wouldn't have stopped them so it's it's um, it's happening and it is something that if they don't find any other way to engage with that it will just um, make them disappear into their phones where they find it on YouTube and they will never find a way to engage with it in the real world. Yeah, and then the discourse is, <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I th there's a follow-up question to that, but it relates, oh. what you've just said relates back to something that I read yesterday that I oh. loved. Um, and you say, whenever public programs specifically address young audiences or families by calling an activity fun-packed, creative, imaginative, colourful, thoughtful or encouraging and utterly positive, the flip side always is the exclusion of children from everything else. Everything that might be different, strange, dark and serious. Though it goes without saying that their lives might be full of just that. Yeah. And it, it, particularly, mm. I think in this country, we are haunted by a lineage of theatre for children that is, is about bubbles and the color yellow mm -hmm. and that we don't we miss out on a whole spectrum of children's experience that is darker or bleaker in some way or to do with a real issue that a child might confront or the idea of destruction or chaos or anarchy or mm. any of those things um, which seems what's really important in these kind of contexts where they do get to have a go at or interrogate the theme of yeah I mean at some point you know I think it's also to do life art is also reacting and talking to the present and I'm working now in in London or in Britain for a few years and I felt that um, it's you find that tendency obviously everywhere but that everyone when adults and kids meet that everyone has to be on their best behavior that is so strong here it's so strong it's such a pressure also on me when i work with the kids i'm constantly reminded that i'm not supposed to talk to that i have to wear a dress code when i speak with them uh, when i work with them i'm not supposed to touch them in any way i'm not supposed to work with them alone i'm not supposed to ask them for their email address or for making a whatsapp group with them and so on it's all not happening it's all too dangerous mm. and so I'm potentially I, I'm potentially evil to them and, <laughs> and and they are potentially evil to everybody else because they tend not to be on their best behavior all the time you know and yeah and so trying to be on our best behavior is not to not to in the end destroy each other or damage each other is actually doing quite a lot of damage because it's separating us too much and, yeah. I was eavesdropping on um, two gentlemen talking behind me yesterday whilst uh, Kaput was happening and they were saying somehow you manage to find the perfect balance between structure and anarchy mm. in a context or a situation and mm. that in that flux, in the management of that <coughs> comes these new sort of potentials mm -hmm. but it does look, watching even just one session yesterday take place, it does look uh, absolutely exhausting to manage yeah. the mania of it. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, but that's not special for working with young people. I mean, I don't always work with young people. I also do collective research processes only with with adults, and especially assembly projects tend to be like that. The most exhausting thing, yeah. because yeah, I mean, it's like. I mean, assembly projects are only interesting if they bring people together 
who not usually get together and then you have to facilitate and kind of transport very different energies all the time. Mm. So yeah, it's, it's exhausting, but it's worth it, it's okay. So as, as someone that takes those risks as part of their practice, which are, which are always perceived to be more risky than they probably are in an actuality, have you ever come across something that you thought or maybe that maybe that was too far, or maybe I, maybe I wish I hadn't. Many times, but in, in what in what sense do you mean? I mean, like it was actually too dangerous, or what? what yeah, do you think? maybe. Well, the, t- today I was thinking about um, when you were having the conversation about the the few days you've just had, and Zoe said something about uh, one of the the academy. Zoe said she perhaps didn't like destruction as much as she did when she came in because she um, it made her realise that a a true act of destruction for her is something that is irreversible you can't go back to the thing before and that sometimes what was lost um, was more precious to her than what was found through the process of it and we can all empathise with those kind of decisions in life or um, things that we've done and I just suppose, I mean, the, the, the nature of research, which is effectively what a lot of your practice is, is trying something out. And lots of things are going to work. But because it's research, some things won't. So I just wondered, what's, um, have you ever felt that the experiment wasn't worth the experience? or Sometimes you get challenged very much, obviously. Um, for example, um, I, I did an improbable institution a few years ago that was called um, a Center for the Invention of me- Measuring Devices. Doesn't sound quite as awkward in German. It was a, it was it was <laughs> it was actually about measure about finding ways to measure ourselves because we felt that kids and adults too get measured a lot basically yeah, yeah, yeah. all the time yeah <laughs> all the time yeah. and and that we get very little um, uh, information about how you actually i mean you you get you learn how to measure with given measures but you don't learn so much how to create a new measuring system you don't make the scale of, of something value. yeah yeah. Yeah. So, so, and if you actually try to create your own measuring system, then you will know lots of things that we don't usually know about how how in how imprecise measuring can be, and that there's a very constructive moment in it when you decide how what you measure, how you measure it, and so on. So, kind of to get that information, to, to get that experience back to us. And, and to explore it also together with the, with the kids. And uh, some of the kids um, I worked with back then was a bunch of 12-year-old uh, boys, pretty rough, and, and they said that they don't want to, want to let go of their swearing words, that they make this uh, experience that swearing is very important to them and they, they, they get all kinds of problems with it, and they would like to measure how bad it really is Right. How bad it really is. And, and that was quite a challenge because, um, I mean, many of their, of their swearing was, much of their swearing was pretty racist and sexist and all kinds of things. And then obviously it's very difficult to find out a proper method to measure how bad this is now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and so, yeah, I mean, we really, we, we and, but in the end, it turned out to be a situation where they then were in front of a supermarket or in some kind of mall and were asking people, if I would call you this and that, how bad would that be on a scale from one to ten? Mm. And um, yeah, it was a bit on the edge because uh, some, I mean, but then in the end it was a good situation because it made, it made them really... I mean, they were kind of embarrassed, or they suddenly felt it again. Yes. Yeah, so how it, yeah. how difficult it is to yeah. say these words just to someone randomly, just because it had to be random to be a 
proper measurement randomly comes around some some woman in a burqa and now yeah. go for it yeah right? yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> now's the time to test your metal yeah yeah so yeah, yeah, just, yeah these things happen but you know but, I, I don't but, know how to get around that really. No, I know, I know it's, it's, uh, everything has a worth as well, doesn't mm. it? And it's, it's about finding out what the outcomes of those things mm. are. Mm. Thank you. I just wondered, because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's kind of interesting, people that do these kind of pieces of work. Um, oh, for example, I mean, Terrell, one of the members of the faculty, two days ago suddenly got this, this idea that this academy could come up with a plan to destroy Trump, the, and 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 we um, we specifically had talked about that this academy would be more about destruction without an enemy, mm. because outside in the world you always have to have the right enemy to be destructive to kind of make it look good, mm -hmm. and that in here we would have that a bit different, and then but then Tarell hasn't been very verbal before and so I didn't want to take this from him now and now say okay this was now wrong you know because we wanted to have destruction without an enemy yes and yeah, yeah, so yeah. but then also of course it was a public venue and there was someone talking about killing um, a legitimate uh, representative <laughs> of a country yeah, so, yeah I mean yeah. this but these things that, you know, these conversations will happen, won't they? And it's, I would presume that that child would leave with a different thought process. You know, he might have come in thinking, actually the best thing to do is assassinate a president. And he might have left with the same or a very different yeah. <laughs> perspective on those things. But without the dialogue, it's, it doesn't move, does it? It doesn't move. Yeah. I just want to talk briefly, if we can, about the theatre of research yeah. um, and the principles of that, which what I understand it to be is, a, as a, is an institution that gets rid of the idea that research is only done by um, academics that have worn floppy hats <laughs> and have gone through some kind of formal academic training, um, that the way that research is done is not on people but with people. Um, that the research is uh, engaged with through practice and doing things that make interventions into the real world quite often. Um, and that what you do is to, to break the sort of hierarchy of things, is to engage with roles to make sure that no person is more important than any other person in a, in a research process. But I might have misunderstood any one of those things. So, no, that's all completely, uh, completely correct. I mean, uh, though maybe this last point. I mean, what I found important in research processes is to come up with these what 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 I would like to call performative role play. That is not playing a role but becoming someone like for example a faculty member of the Academy of Destruction which is something that you then actually are for real for the three days mm. and, and it has some kind of manifestation because you have uh, a chair in that faculty, an actual yeah. chair um, and, and nobody else is supposed to sit on it if you want to sit on it. But then, yeah, um, that's important. That wasn't. It's very important to to first um, make adults and kids move, meet uh, on eye level. But then, of course, nevertheless, you have very different roles in a research process. I mean, in this project, for example, visitors were more like students, and people in the project were faculty members or members of staff. And there was a hierarchy between visitors and professors, just the professors were, many of them were 11. Mm. Right? Yeah, so hierarchy does exist, but not within the yeah. people. <laughs> but it's just, a, a, a lot of research seems to be done on kids, and this is, this feels interesting because it's... Yeah, I mean, that is something that, that I always try to make very clear, that we are not, we are not doing research with kids 
because we want to be inclusive, but because we think it, ha it gets us better results. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Because... And you find that to be true? Yes, I, th I find that to be true. I mean, also in a project like this, we saw a summary of, of a video document today, but there is a long process of, of now seeing what are the results and where to communicate them to, to, to which audiences do we want to communicate results now, next. Um, also, I think what is very important if you do transdis transdisciplinary research with, it, with, with a group of, of very different people, that people obviously have different aims and agendas for that research and what, what a result might be. Mm. Right? I mean, um, results for our, our kids, members of faculty might be very different than results for me looking at destruction in art, for example, how can that was one quest research question that we had from the Life Art Development Agency or from the artist side. Okay, destruction in art has been this huge thing in the 60s, but is it actually, and, and it was even something that was meant to be a peace movement at some point. How is that can we relate back to that or can we, can we make a new version of, of that happen? That, that was one important research question that we had. And at some point, it's, it's important that everyone, everyone is allowed to have their own agenda in the research mm. and that you build a setup so that this can actually help each other. So at some points, you are definitely doing research on the people you're talking to. Mm. But that's... But that's reciprocal and they can do research yes, on you Yes, that's as reciprocal well. and that's also how you learn, right? I mean, also kids learn from teachers not what they say, but they learn how to, I mean, they basically learn how to teach. They learn, they learn by, by looking mm. at uh, uh, yeah, what is done much more than the content. You do say something, and this is the last time I'll read you something you've written, okay. because I know it's cringy. <laughs> <Is it? laughs> um, but you say something really, I think, is quite beautiful about children and research. Um, when you say, in their early research, children often have amazing experiences of success. Indeed, they succeed in standing, walking, speaking, drawing. No wonder that for a while some of them think everything is possible. If you can learn to speak, why not, um, why not learn to perform magic or attempt to fly? And there's something about a child's perspective on the world being more... Um, more unbridled in the possibilities of what a piece of research could be or just asking questions that are more interesting than the questions we might mm. ask as adults and I presume that's part of what makes the experience of working with them in research terms more exciting yeah it's also something that I, I like to call the wish energy. I think it's very important if you do research together. I mean, many things are called research these days also in performance and in education and so on, which in my view are not. Um, they're just open open processes of... of um, um, yeah, now, now I miss the English word for it, but I mean, maybe I tried to say it the other way around. What I think is important is that you have a wish that you follow um, if you want to engage in, in, in this kind of research. For example, I mean, there has to be, you, you, you can't only have a question to do research with kids. I mean, I know questions are very important and so on, but actually a question might not be important enough, long enough. It's not all about curiosity, you know, and finding answers to questions. It's about following our wishes that we have and and, um, and that's what, what kids really are, are, are good for because they have really strong wishes while our wishing is has been taken from us a lot because we know we can't we know about so many wishes that we can't have them <laughs> anyway so <laughs> we've, we've learned cynicism but we don't, yeah, well, you know, you can't have it, you know it. And then you don't want to disappoint yourself all the time. Yeah. You know? Or you don't want to admit to them. 
I think yeah, perhaps maybe you they, do have the same desires, but you'd never say out loud. Exactly. Oh, so I'd love to do yeah. that because you sound silly by not being able to achieve it. And then there's also this process that everybody just constantly wants to sell us something that is kind of addressing wishes we are supposed to have. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so adults clearly get confused about what they really wish for at some point, and, and, and kids don't do that. So don't have that so much. They know very, very clearly they that, that they yeah. want to destroy, that they want to meet a real pirate, that they want to be rich, that they want to meet a ghost, that these things, they are really clear. Mm. And, and you can... And that's very helpful because you can relate back to them and think, oh, yes, really, I, I, I want that. I always wanted that too. How could I forget? <laughs> of course I want to be rich. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, uh, final question, because I've probably taken more of your time than I should have done. Okay. Um, what, what's next? What are you, what's on the horizon and what, what are you most interested in at the moment? I mean, the Theatre of Research is, is actually a, a venue in Hamburg, so you are invited to come around and see it for yourself. I would love to. So, um, there's when I come to London to work here, things are piling up at home and what we are doing next is a project called There's No Business Like Show Business, where we give a big piece of our production money, actually 3,000 euro for a show. We give it to the kids and they have to decide what to produce. So we wanted the kids to be, be in the, or try out what they would feel about being the producer of a show. Because lots of work with and for children these days, if it is participatory, puts kids on the stage, mm. in, in the spotlight. Like, and, and of course they're not paid for that usually. Yeah. And here they are. But, um, and so we wanted to, to give them the responsibility about for the money and um, so they can for once create the show they want to create and we just help them with that. Mm -hmm. And that's all that we did that a few times but a new round is coming up and it's pretty challenging because often, I mean kids make amazing suggestions, we, they pitch amazing ideas but then there's a majority vote of 50 kids which of the pitched ideas are going to be realized, it will be three, right. and that's mostly very, very popular choices, like we spend it all on sweets, <laughs> we, <laughs> we try to get a football star in here, yeah. and, and, and then it's for us as a, as a performer, team of performers to kind of make that into a, I mean to collaborate, to make that, follow that wish and still make a show out of it, mm. so that's coming from tomorrow. Well, that's that, that, that starts tomorrow. <laughs> There's no rest for the wicked. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, James. It was. Thank you. Sibylla really had just come to an end of an extremely busy two-week residency during this interview, so my sincere thanks to her for taking the time. If you're interested in hearing more of these kind of chats in the future, then please do subscribe or leave comments about the podcast via Twitter at Bootworks or forward slash Bootworks if you're a Facebooker. If you have any suggestions of who I should go and talk to next, then maybe drop me an email on james at bootworkstheatre.co.uk. Until next time, thanks for being with us. Bootworks. Theatre. Talkshop. Bootworks Theatre Talkshop.